Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is Dr. Stacy Sims, exercise physiologist, researcher, and nutrition scientist who has been doing a ton of work in her career, hoping to understand exercise, nutrition, and performance for female athletes, specifically those of us who are endurance athletes. Dr. Stacy Sims' work has been a huge foundational component of my education, both as a runner and as a coach. And so getting the chance to talk to her today for this episode was a huge treat. Some of the really interesting things that we talked about in this conversation include looking at intermittent fasting or intraday deficits as a as why it's so detrimental to especially female athlete performance, but also talking about general health and body composition, if that's something that you are generally inclined to pay attention to. We also talk about ways to periodize your nutritional sources when it comes to training in terms of influencing your gut microbiome. Trust me, it makes sense when you listen. Talking about using different sources of carbohydrates in training rather than possibly just relying on ultra-processed carbohydrates that you will also be utilizing in a race performance, some really cool stuff there. And we also talk about cycle syncing and some of the research that she and other researchers were initially working on, how that's been co-opted and twisted by mainstream marketing in terms of having everything synced around your cycle. Is there any validity to what those coaches are selling you? Probably not. And we talk about that as well. So we cover a ton of ground in this in this conversation. And I hope you please enjoy. Dr. Stacey Sims, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. So I have to say your uh, book, Roar, was, I think for me, an inflection point in my, I would say, career as a runner, as an athlete. Up until that point, I had been doing the very trendy, low-carb, keto, endurance, fat-adapted thing, and I was like <laughs> not feeling really good and wondering, like, okay, maybe something's going on here, and I picked up your book, and by the like the second chapter, and I have it sitting in front of me, sitting next to me, and it's like highlighted to heck. By the second chapter, I was like convinced. I was like, oh, okay, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing wrong, and I know how to fix it. So I wanted nice. to say thank you because I think that I know, I don't think, I know that you've changed my life and you've changed the lives of so many women who just want to become better athletes, professional, recreational, everybody in between. So thank you for your work. Oh, thank you for saying so. I'm so happy that you feel better. That's the whole like drive, I think, for me is to get women to understand their own bodies and do things that are right for them. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to start talking today as these conversations about performance and fueling and all this stuff, all roads often lead back to conversations about body composition and weight and size and muscle and fat and all those things that we tend to think of, we think of body composition. And I'm going to quote from your book, and I'm sure people quote your book at you all the time, but in your book, Roar, you say, the core of the problem, I believe, is the very notion that there is one magic weight we all should be but it simply doesn't exist. Uh, And then I'll kind of elaborate on this and ask you for your thoughts on this. I tend to find that when people, you know, explore this concept of fueling for performance, they also somehow think that it will implicitly produce for them this magic body composition or size that they've also always been chasing. 
Tell me your thoughts on this body composition for performance and chasing a specific weight that so many female athletes find themselves trapped in. Yeah. So uh, part of it, I should say, is really the social construct, right? Where women are always told they need to be smaller and take less room and they need to be, you know, the certain waist circumference and all these things that so many of us have grown up with. It's still in the media. And I mean, like even certain times of the year, you'll see these women health magazines and they're like, if you eat three cookies, you have to run X amount on the treadmill. All this stuff is bullshit. And it really demoralizes and demeans and disempowers women. So when we're talking about body composition for performance, we know that you need a certain amount of body fat in order to be healthy. And then when we're looking from a sport aesthetic standpoint, so many people look to who the professional athletes are or who the Olympians are without really understanding that, that those people are genetically different than the rest of us. They work hard, yes, but there is something inherently within their genetic makeup that makes them as successful as they are to be in those pivotal points. I love watching the Olympics because it shows you what is the ultimate body type to be successful at the pointy end of the spear in that particular sport. And when ESPN puts out like their body image and you see a gymnast next to a pole vaulter next to a volleyball player, they're all different and their body shapes and sizes are all different. So we look just into running and the running conversation is the lighter you are, the better, the less body fat you have, the better, which is not true. We see any kind of body shape and size being successful in the sub-elite categories. And yes, there can be a time if you're running a really, really hilly race or you want to be um, an ultra runner in the mountains, that maybe we do need to consider it. But for the general person, it's about health. It's not about body composition. It's not about, I need to be X amount of weight for performance. Because when people start focusing on that, their training suffers, their health suffers, their sleep suffers. We start seeing more injuries. And when we see injuries, that means you're not training, which then really has that negative downward spiral where now I'm not training, so I'm going to restrict my calories because I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to put on weight. I'm not going to be able to run well, which doesn't allow them to heal and just keeps going and going and going. And I think Understanding that logically and then applying that to yourself as an, a recreational runner can be really hard because we can look at some of the times and some of the performances that the elite and even some sub-elite runners have and say, okay, well, I get that they're born that way, but wouldn't it be easier if I just also lost that last X number of pounds and you know, wouldn't my running be easier? But explaining to people mm. that your, your best performing body size and weight is unlikely to be your thinnest possible body weight is a really hard conversation to have in a way that really breaks through because like you said it's that societal construct of we should always be striving to become thinner and that implicitly exercise is always going to be but like we should be exercising yeah for performance and health but like it's also going to help you lose weight my goodness it's hard to sort through all of this and also have a healthy relationship with your body and also try to go set prs I know. It is hard. And then when people are like, oh, I'm exercising to lose weight, I'm like, exercise doesn't make you lose weight. Matter of fact, if you overexercise, it makes you put fat on. You can't outrun 
a bad diet. You can't outrun mistiming of nutrients. So, you know, that whole condition that we've had, calories in, calories out, do exercise to lose weight, it is definitely a misnomer when we're looking at it from a health perspective. If you do nothing and you start exercising, yes, you'll lose weight because it's energy consumption. But if you're already active and you're trying to budge the needle on body composition and weight, it's not increasing your exercise. It's now we have to look and make sure that we're eating enough and that we're fueling for what we're doing or eating in and around our training. We're making sure we have enough protein and sleep. And that's the big thing that gets missed a lot. Oh, I have to work late or I have all these things I need to do, but I also need to get up early for my run before work. And that's where we start to see this huge misstep when we're trying to accommodate for what our bodies need to, from a body composition standpoint, be successful. And what I mean by successful is staying injury-free, staying healthy, and being able to do the things that we want with regards to the distance we're training or racing or all of the things that go into it. I want to ask you your opinion and about the research that you've seen regarding, let's say, we'll talk about intermittent fasting for runners. I, I, we know diet trends kind of come and go. Fasting is super popular right now. Um, but yeah. we also know what a lot of the research is saying about uh, how detrimental within day deficits can be, especially for female athletes. Even if you're eating enough by the end of the day, if you are front loading or back loading a deficit, that can be a real problem, except that's exactly what fasting is. So I yes. want to ask you about that. <laughs> <clears throat> I know. I um, woke up this morning and for some reason thinking about fasting, maybe because I was on a call last night late about it, about supplements and fasting. I was like, how strange is it that we live in a society where people purposely want to restrict their food intake, where there are other countries within the society that do it not because they want to, but because they have to because of food poverty. I was like, what have we gotten ourselves into? Where fasting is this big trend where I want to restrict my calories and not eat. It's like, well, you need to take a step back then and we have to see what is normal eating and what are, are the things that we're doing to nourish ourselves rather than being overfed. So when we look at fasting, especially with the within day um, detriment with regards to hormone and stuff, we see people really who don't want to break their fast first thing in the morning, right? And they're like, oh, I'm going to continue fast. I'm not that hungry. I can do it. I can make it till noon. And I'm going to do my run training and it's going to give me this great feeling and focus. But those individuals, both men and women who hold on and don't break their fast till noon or after end up with more obesogenic outcomes. So we're looking at, okay, well, why is that? It's chronobiology. So when we're looking at not fueling ourselves for when our body needs energy, the body is very smart and the hypothalamus is like, hold on a second, there's not enough nutrition. So I'm going to start down-regulating these things. And this is where we see that dysregulation. When we start seeing insulin resistance, we start seeing more of a serial fat gain and people are like, what's going on? Why can't I lose this body fat? So unfortunately in the active population, especially women, when they do this and they're like, I'm having more body fat than I want. I must not be training enough and I must be eating too much. So then like more stringent on their fasting instead of actually pulling back and going, wait, I'm not giving my body the food and fuel it needs to overcome this stress. And running in itself is the stress and you need to fuel for it to then overcome that stress to get fitter and faster. 
I want to dive into this more because this is something that I, and I'm not a dietitian, but my goodness, <laughs> I hear a lot of this from a lot of the, especially the female athletes. I mean, I will say that there are definitely some, some male runners I work with who we've had to have the conversation about fasting uh, and how it's not something you should be doing. Um, but specifically, like, why is this specifically a problem for our female athletes? Let's say we're getting up at 530 in the morning, I'm going to the track and doing maintenance workout, and I'm coming home, showering, getting the kids ready for school, have my day, and then at 11 o'clock, I'm getting my lunch together, which I'm calling my first meal of the day. And I think one of the problems it for is for so many things that happened in our bodies that a lot of these, a lot of these shifts and, and issues take so long to accumulate. So you might have somebody who's been doing this for a couple months, maybe a year. And they're like, I, I feel fine. I don't think anything's wrong, but what's really happening in our bodies when that happens? Yeah. So for one, women need more carbon. We need to be um, fueled when we're exercising. And that really comes down to the hypothalamus where we see in women, we have two areas in the hypothalamus that have kispeptin neurons. And one area is really responsible for body composition, appetite, um, thermoregulatory control. The other one is endocrine function. So if we are going and we're doing our track workout fasted or maybe on black coffee, coming home, showering, get the kids out the door, and then finally, whew, 11 o'clock having food, what we're signaling to the hypothalamus is that we're under significant stress. So even if you're not seeing body composition changes, so many women walk around tired but wired. So they're like so exhausted, even if they think they're sleeping well, and they just can't get on top of it. And so they'll go through their training, they'll go through their day, and they're just kind of like in this continuous kind of fog. And it is because they're sympathetically driven. They haven't been able to get out of that sympathetic drive because it's a stress response. If you're not fueling, one, you're not able to hit the metrics that you need to necessarily within your training to get the training stress so your body responds by adapting to get fitter and faster without injury. And then the other is the brain is like, there's there's lack of nutrition here. So I'm going to start downturning things. I'm going to put myself on high alert in case there's a beast coming after me because that's what happens when we're in this you know situation when there's no calories. We are going to be hunted down. And then the other thing is we start to see menstrual cycle dysfunction. And most of the time we'll see changes in bleed pattern before we see changes in actual cycle length. And when we start seeing changes in bleed pattern, people are like, oh, well, maybe that's my new normal. I'm not sure. But that's a sign that your body is under the significant stress. So body composition is one thing that we do pay attention to because we know like when you're in full red S or low energy availability, you start to see changes in body composition. But the first telling signs is that sympathetic, wired, but tired feeling that so many people have. And then that change in the bleed pattern of the menstrual cycle. How many athletes do you talk to who are coming to you describing exactly what you've just described and saying, I guess I'm just in perimenopause. This is just what's happening because this is my phase of life right now. Yep. I have a lot of that recently. Yep. And they're like, why am I having, you know, I must be perimenopause because I have brain fog and starting to put on some belly fat and I can't hit my training metrics and I'm losing lean mass. And the very first thing I do is I look at, are they fueling? And what are they doing? And first, we get them out of a low energy state. Whether or not, like you were saying, bookending your calories. A friend of mine calls um, her dinner the nighttime obesity because she realized that she was booking all of her calories towards the end of the day. Now she's working to front load them. But that's true. It's like people have that, you know, really intense meal at the end of the day. So we try to 
front load it, and really fuel for what they're doing and see how that settles symptoms and body composition. Once they get that sorted after a few weeks, then they settle into a new normal. Appetite starts to come back. We start to see, you know, are they sleeping better? If they're sleeping better, how does that affect that sympathetic drive? Then we can make assumptions based on, on the data of what are the perimenopausal symptoms if you are in perimenopause, or is it really a fact of the mistiming of the food intake? Nutrient timing piece is tough because if somebody's been in this pattern of either intentionally or unintentionally restricting intake, especially beginning of the day, they're accustomed to working out fasted or mostly fasted. I mean, a lot of times what I hear is, well, I'm just not hungry. I'm not hungry before my workout. I'm not hungry at five o'clock in the morning. I'm not hungry right after my workout. And convincing people to eat when they're not hungry is something that I see a lot of people, yeah, they struggle with that. They're like, well, I'm not hungry. Why should I eat? Yeah, I know. And they're like, I'm doing intuitive eating. I'm not eating unless I'm hungry. But it's a, it's more of a catch-22 as much as I don't really like using that phrase. It is in the fact that if you don't eat and you're training while you are fasted, then it, you're going to get a misstep in your appetite hormones. So you're not going to feel hungry. And I've had to retrain quite a few people about what it means to feel hungry and not hungry. So, you know, we purposely withhold food in the afternoon to see what patterns they get into. What are the feelings of being hungry without them being able to understand what a hunger cue is naturally? So is it energy level? Is it, um, you know, lack of focus, concentration, uh, being too cold, too hot? So they write down all their symptoms and then give them some food a few days. Like we revamp it and be like, okay, well, we've gotten this. And so the next like three or four days, we're going to purposely fuel for what you're doing. Even if you're not hungry, we're going to have a little bit of this. We're going to do this. And then in the afternoon, we're going to purposely give you food. And I want you to write down all your symptomology. And then they realize that all of the stuff that they feel in the afternoon is usually because they're not fed. And so then they start going, oh, my hunger cue isn't my tummy rumbling or feeling low blood sugar. It's this really dead and dead leg feeling. So they're like, oh, okay, I need a little bit of food. And so it is that purposeful reteaching and getting that reconnection between what it means to be hungry and what it means to be fed. So, yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah, I, I reconnecting, like getting in touch with our body, I think for some people sounds a little woo-woo, but it's like, no, you, you probably have these preconceived notions of what certain things feel like, but that could be wrong. Like you're, like you said, your hunger cues could not, I mean, eventually if it gets to tummy rumbling, holy crap, I'm super hungry. Like that's, that's like, oh wow, you really need to go to the fridge right now. Cause you are at the yeah. end of your hunger. Like, but it started way before that. So learning to dial into, Hey, when I start to get hungry, what does that feel like? Yeah. I'm, my daughter points it out to me about five o'clock every afternoon. Um, if I've been working too hard in the day, I'm hungry, but I don't realize it. And my daughter's like, mom, you're very grumpy with me. What is wrong? And I'm like, oh, sorry. I'm grumpy with everyone because I'm hungry. <laughs> That's my hunger cue. <laughs> That's my hunger cue. When I don't want to be around people because I'm too grumpy, that means I need food. <laughs> For most of my life, I've dealt with gut issues. TMI? Anybody who's worked with a running coach knows there's no such thing as TMI. And it can be not only frustrating, but debilitating depending on how it's affecting you, whether it's showing up on your runs or in your daily life. Taking care of your gut health is a really important part of just how we feel comfortable and confident in our bodies. After working with a sports dietitian last year, I started including a probiotic as part of my daily routine. And these days, that probiotic is the Prevenex probiotic. 
For those of you who've been listening to the show for the past few years, you'll know that when I started working with sponsors, I made a promise to you that I would never, ever, ever recommend a product that I did not personally use and think was great. And the Prevenix probiotic, I personally use and I think it's great. Maintaining a healthy gut microbiome has been a really important part of my life now, which is a funny thing to say, but hey, welcome to your 30s. And honestly, the probiotic is a huge part of that because when my gut's happy, I'm happy. I think we all know what that means. So if you're hoping to turn your gut frown upside down, try Prevenix. And if you don't feel the effects, return it. No questions asked, 100% money back guarantee. So visit Prevenix.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X, and use code RUNEXP to save 15% on your first purchase. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P to save 15% on your first purchase on Prevenex.com. Your digestive health will thank you. I wanted to ask you about, and here, we're just going to, I sent you this beautiful outline and we're just totally going off script because now I'm just curious about a bunch of stuff. I wanted to ask you about the argument for, I would say, trying to optimize certain substrate utilizations through nutritional manipulation, AKA, well, if I train fasted, I'm gonna force my body to burn more fat instead of carbohydrate or glucose and explore, like having that be the reason that they are choosing to make that, uh, that nutritional choice. Yeah, I tell men when they wanna become more like women, they should do that because men are not, quote, metabolically flexible. Men go through their liver and their um, their muscle glycogen really rapidly, and then they tap into body fat. Women were already there. By the nature of being born XX, then we have incredible amount of protein within our mitochondria that creates a, a translocation for a plasma membrane protein, the CD36, to really increase fat utilization. And we also have different receptors within the liver that when we start getting low blood sugar, it's like, whoa, I'm not relinquishing my glycogen. I want to burn more fat. So women are already at their maximum fatty acid oxidation capacity. Then we can add in estrogen and progesterone, and those two also have an effect on the fact that women use more fatty acid. So when I get that argument of, I want to increase my fatty acid oxidation capacity, and I was like, You don't need to. You don't need to do that. We don't need to do, quote, metabolic flexibility training. Women are already metabolically flexible. We don't need to increase our body's aerobic capacity for burning fat because our mitochondria are already there. We have more mitochondria density and ability to burn fat than men. So if you really want to nudge the needle on body composition, then we need to fuel fasted and do some intensity work because that's what we as women are lacking over the when we're looking at compared to men and how men can fuel and get leaner and fitter we really have to work on that top end we have to work on that anaerobic capacity because that's going to trigger more of an epigenetic response to get rid of the cereal fat through crosstalk between the muscle and the fat it's going to get rid of that subcutaneous or the typical body fat through crosstalk so that's what we have to work on not the long slow fasted stuff that's also tricky to balance, though, especially when we have people who are really used to doing, you know, Orange Theory Fitness five days a week, you know, a lot of super intense CrossFit mm-hmm. and following their low carb recommendations. We end up with people who are doing a lot of really high intensity exercise and it's really imbalanced. 
Yes. And I am so tired of women going, oh, I'm so afraid of carbohydrate. I was like, my lunch every day is two pieces of toast with salt and butter. I love it. It's great. Carbohydrate is good. And people look at me and they're like, what you, what you eat? How much carb? I'm like, well, yeah, because my brain needs it. My body needs it. If I want to be able to polarize my training, go super hard when I need to go super hard and recover when I want to recover. And then the next day go out and do something different. I need carbohydrate. And once people start going, oh, maybe I should look into that. And they add a little bit more and they feel better in their workout. They see how much better they're recovering. Again, it's kind of that you have to teach to learn and experiment. And it's really hard to get that first hurdle over telling people they need carbohydrate when they're hearing from the gym and their you know community. No, you don't. It's like you really want to pay attention to who you are. And know that as a woman, there are different things that you need versus what the gym and the fitness culture is telling you, because that's all based on male data. So let's pull it back and let's talk to ourselves through the female lens. And what does the female body need? I know you one of the first, say, mainstream exercise physiologists to talk about the role of female physiology in the menstrual cycle and performance and all the different factors and considerations that we have. But as... I'll say social media these days is want to do and as the news cycles want to do, things tend to get very oversimplified and then like really dumbed down and kind of misunderstood. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts on what you what some I'll call them cycle syncing coaches are now talking about in terms of how you should completely change the different types of exercise you're doing throughout your month based on what phase of your menstrual cycle you're in like only lift heavy on this week and only do cardio in this week this seems like we're where we've totally lost the train of thought on on what this is supposed to be yeah exactly so when it first started we were looking and i can take some other responsibility for getting out there and i will own that but what we were originally talking about was stress and stress resilience so if we're looking at how the body can be resilient to stress and that's life stress and training stress from an immune system factor from a cognitive factor from a fueling factor then yes we could see how hormones can affect us and we can see how in the endocrine literature that there's differences in blood sugar control and fueling and we see all of these things but what is missing from the conversation that is so important and i say this because i work closely with a sociologist the incredible thing that is missing is that personal lived experience so when we're looking at a woman and asking her about her own lived experience in her menstrual cycle, that becomes more important than saying, oh, well, it's day one. I don't care if you have really bad cramping, you need to go hard because that doesn't happen. Because if we perceive ourselves as not being able to go hard, then we won't go hard. And it doesn't mean that we are not necessarily willing. It's just we have an intrinsic responsibility to ourselves to take care of ourselves. So when we start talking about um, cycle syncing, we look at how hormones are fluctuating, then yes, from a physiological perspective, in the follicular phase, this is where we are more robust to stress. And the reason why that we are very stress resilient is because the body is preparing to release the best egg possible for fertilization for reproductive standpoint. So we see we have a higher heart rate variability in this phase. We have better parasympathetic drive. We have a, um, an immune system that is really driven to take on pathogen, virus, bacteria. 
we can access carbohydrate more easily. We can um, see that we have better uh, thermoregulatory control. We our core temperature is a little bit lower. When estrogen starts to surge right before ovulation, we have more fast twitch as- aspects of our muscle contractions. And so we can take that into consideration, but then we have to put the other layer on there. And that is this, the personal experience of the menstrual cycle. So when we start talking about cycle syncing, it's like, yes, we have this generalization where we know after ovulation, there are some things that happen, but there are caveats in that. One, are you ovulating or not? And this is something that a lot of women don't know. And we also know that a lot of women have anovulatory cycles um, quite a few times a year. And then when you add in running and running stress or travel stress, then the chances of anovulatory cycles increases. The other caveat about it is when you start paying attention to your own menstrual cycle or hormone um, contraception driven cycle, you start to see your own patterns. You start to see that, hey, on day two, I feel fantastic. So I am going to go nail that hard workout. But you know what? On day about eight, estrogen is starting to come up. I feel a bit flat. So I'm not going to put in that workout. So it gives you the opportunity to have more control over the, the training and to work with your hormones. And so when we're starting to see all these systematic reviews coming out and then analyses coming out and the whole world shouting, wait, there is no effective menstrual cycle. There's some caveats in that because they're not taking the qualitative work in there. And they're also very narrow in the papers that they're looking at because methodology has been an issue within sports science. So the cycle syncing started coming out as a good thing to make people aware of menstrual cycle and tracking it and going, yeah, from a physiological perspective, there are different times of the month where you can go harder than others, but it's gotten way out of hand and marketing has trumped science in this. And for someone to say you can't do anything for two weeks of the month because you're in the high hormone phase, I'm like, where did that come from? That's absolutely not true. And then we get people who are dry, like falling down those rabbit holes, like we typically, you know, we've fallen down with, you know, carbohydrate, low carbohydrate rabbit holes, and these these things that are. I mean, I I do feel, I do feel for the general population in that scientific literacy is a real issue, and even if you do have a general degree of sci- general understanding scientific literacy. You're probably not coming through research papers. You may not have enough of an understanding of the topic being researched to understand what's being presented to you. And it's tough, right? So I think I think it's we have to we have to have empathy and sympathy for people who are like, wait, but I I I literally up until this moment believe that that was true. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that isn't talked about is the political arena within academia, because you'll see these per, these purposeful groups all putting out certain different research that might be con- contraindicated to each other, as because it's not necessarily the research; it's the author bias that's coming out. And the general layperson doesn't understand that political ramification. So I feel like as academics, we have a responsibility when we're disseminating information to not have that bias. But not everyone feels that way, which is really unfortunate because then we have all these myths and mixed messages that confuses everybody. Sometimes when people, we talk about the quality of research, a lot of the people, the questions they have is, well, where did the funding come from? Who's funding this study? And I mean, studies have to get funded by somebody, but you are thinking more about when we talk about, we all have our own biases about everything, right? We are all biased Mm -hmm. in some way about basically everything. It's very hard sometimes for you saying for some people to implicitly or explicitly remove that bias from what they're studying and what they're looking at. 
True. Very true. But one of the things to remember is that the funding body doesn't have uh, any kind of a real say on the outcomes. You have to apply for grants, go through it. And so, you know, say a pharmaceutical company wants to help fund research on hormone contraception. They're not going to tell you what the outcomes are going to be. It's like, as a scientist, you're looking for funding. Um, so I get a bit frustrated when people are like, oh, but they were funded by so-and-so. So of course it says this. It's like, no, no, because it goes through the writing the grant to get the funding. The funding body is hands off. Then you have to do all the data collection. You have to do the analyses. You have to go through peer review and then answer those comments, those critiques, and then it gets published. There's a whole process behind it. And very rarely in the real scientific community is there input from the funding body. I went through this and I, I'm not an academic myself, but I posted something not too long ago and it was a, a link to a study and somebody said, well, this study was funded by Gatorade. And I was like, do you know, do you know how many studies are funded by the Gatorade Sports Science Institute? And like, I know. oh my goodness, we'd be half the research would be thrown out the window if this were a problem. Just because the funding came from a certain body doesn't, like you said, necessarily mean anything about what the research is actually uh, looking at or finding. Yeah, and Gatorade is really good for having student um, funding. So like as a PhD student or a master's student, you can get your hand into grant writing and learn how to write it because they have these small grants. And yes, you're right. It is Gatorade. I am not a fan of Gatorade, but I am a fan of the fact that they make scholarship available for people to actually do research. I want to talk about carbs a little bit more and, and talk about fueling you know, during, I guess, during our sessions. Um, one of the more interesting comebacks, but I've, I've heard this from enough people where it's like, oh, this is a thing, is the concern that if I fuel with carbohydrates during my run, during my ride, that I'm going to somehow teach my body to be reliant on carbohydrates, and then I'm always gonna need them for my future runs and my future races. Which is a little like saying, if I give my car gas, I'm gonna teach my car to be reliant on gasoline. Um, yeah. But I, I imagine in your work, you probably come across many of these beliefs and thoughts. So tell me, if have you heard that one? I have heard that one. And I'm like, well, actually you do wanna be reliant on carbohydrate because then it helps your body uh, have a reduction in stress. Um, and it, it, people often think that it's a, like, if I'm just taking carb, then I'm just relying on carb. But the body is not a linear algorithm. You're always using fat and amino acids and carbohydrate all the time to fuel. It's the first about five minutes of exercise where there's a little bit of a, of a nuance where it's ATP and then it's anaerobic capacity or anaerobic glycolysis. And then you get into fat burning and more glucose utilization. But once you pass that five minutes, all of the systems are working together. So for women bringing in exogenous carbohydrate or you know eating some carbohydrate, it actually helps you do better than if you're like trying to rely on your own blood glucose. Because women go through blood glucose first and the liver's reading that. So like I was saying earlier, when the liver is like, hey, wait, blood glucose is low, gotta kick in the fatty acid. Well, you want to maintain a certain level so that you're not over-reliant on fatty acids because that's and, I yeah. hear that all the time. But if I use carbohydrate, my body gets used to it. It's like, we well, need carbs. It's part of the way that your body fuels all muscle contraction because carbohydrate means glucose. Glucose is the primary fuel for muscle contraction. Talk to us about fructose as a source of carbohydrate, especially in the context of endurance performance. Yeah, so fructose is the funny thing because there is a... a 
what we call a gate in the intestines that fructose is utilized for. But when we're looking at taking it straight as its molecule itself, you can have an overabundance of fructose that kind of sits in the small intestines because then you end up with an overactivation of your um, transport mechanism. What you want to do is look at sucrose because sucrose is rate limited where it breaks down to, to glucose and fructose. So yes, you do need a little bit of fructose, but when you're looking at your traditional uh, sports nutrition products that have maltodextrin and fructose, you end up overloading the small intestines. They kind of hang out in there. And what happens when you have carbohydrate that's hanging out in the small intestines is it pulls water in. Pulls water into the small intestines, which causes your GI distress, your bloating, and unfortunately later in the afternoon or evening, all the gas that comes out and that slosh and what I call the goo gut because you have too much of one type of carbohydrate hanging out and the body can't do anything with it. So when we're looking at people who are like, oh, well, you said no fructose at all. I can't have um, apricots or dates. I'm like, small amounts, if you chop it up and put it in with other things, that's fine. It's not going to be too much of an interference. It's when you're taking straight fructose with and or maltodextrin, that's when we really start to see these issues. We talk about having those multiple sources of transportal carbohydrates, the kind of gate-limited or rate-limited absorption. Are there any currently available commercial gel-type products that you feel fit the profile of what you'd recommend somebody use? If we had to go down the gel route, I would say Maple Untapped. So Ted King's company that does just pure maple syrup, because um, it is one of the least processed, right? And it's not as thick as, as normal things. And it's, I mean, maple syrup is just glucose and sucrose. So it eliminates that whole fructose idea. We see from a lot of the athletic research and impact on gut microbiome. So if you're using all these simple carbohydrates during training when your gut is under a lot of um, hypoxic and heat stress, it can cause a gut dysbiosis where it instigates the growth of the bacteria that thrives on simple carbohydrates and in those conditions. So then when you are at rest, you're having this gut microbiome discrepancy where you're kind of more killing off the bacteria that allows you to have more of a lean physique and encouraging the growth of the phyla that encourages body fat gain and immune issues and that kind of stuff. So it's just be very careful of how much you're taking in from a simple carbohydrate standpoint when you are putting your body under a lot of this heat and hypoxic condition because your body tries to adapt to the highest amount of stress because it doesn't want to overcome that. So if you're thinking about having lunch and you're sitting down and that's not a lot of stress. But if you're running for 90 minutes to two hours and your body's under a lot of heat and hypoxia and you're feeding it simple carbohydrate, the body's gut is like, this is what we need to adapt to because this is the highest stress. So you're talking about using carbohydrates in training. Like if you're not in the immediate run up to your race, you'd be using more, I would say like whole sources of carbohydrates. And then in the, you know, in the week's prior to your actual race, switching over to more of that, okay, well, this is what I'm to be using in my race. And this is more of that, you know, race performance process convenience fuel. So what I usually recommend is, yes, we want to be able to train what we are going to be using in a race, but before we get to that point where we're getting closer to a race, let's use some other things when we're doing our long runs or we're doing our tempo workouts. And then when we get closer to the race, we start implementing race 
nutrition and race strategies because then we have less of an impact on overall gut microbiome. The convenience factor, though, can't be ignored, right? I mean, I think it's it's hard enough to convince our athletes to like, hey, you know, you should be fueling on some of these runs, and then to suggest to them that they bring a sandwich with them, you know, <laughs> that I know, yeah, that that some of these convenience products, these sports f- nutrition products, like it's so much easier to just rip it and down it than like take out my tin foil and like unwrap my, you know. <laughs> I know. I know. So what I tell people when you're, okay, if you're going to go out for a 90 minute run, if you're eating, you know, within the hour before you go, then you're topped up with fuel. So then for the last half an hour of the run, you can use glucose tablets because glucose tablets will boost your blood sugar and it doesn't even affect digestion because they're pretty much being absorbed in the mouth. So you're not going to have that that gut response, the gut bug response, because it's not being digested like a gel is being digested. If you're going for a longer run, so you're going over 90 minutes, and this is where we need to start investigating some other sources. So this is where a low fructose dried fruit might come into play, because you're not going to be doing intensity work for over 90 minutes. It's going to be a little bit lower intensity. So you can think about taking some figs or mushed up, or you can do um, like taking the Trek mix from Trader Joe's and dumping it into a food processor, blending it up, and then you have little bites. And so you can put a little bite in, right? And then chomp, chomp, gone. It's, it's just getting used to that idea where, yes, it's convenient to rip over, open a gel. And you see people with their gel flask and they're taking a sip. And I was like, you have limited space for fluid. So if you're going to carry something, carry something that's going to hydrate you. Because when you're thinking about running and how impactful it is on the body and the gut, it's better to be hydrated to help with some of that stress rather than to be hypohydrated and throwing back the gels, which is going to cause a lot of distress down the line. I know one of the things you advocate for is separating your fuel from your hydration. Um for me personally, I feel like it's easier to control them when they're separate. Like if I, if my needs are different on one day, I can increase my fluid intake and it's not tied to my carbohydrate intake. Um, talk to me about that. And and I guess talk about, we'll transition, talk about hydration needs for our female athletes. And is there anything that we may have been taught from research that was done on our elite male athletes that may not translate to what our female athletes need? Yeah, so I'm completely with you separating them. It makes sense because what you're doing on the day dictates your fuel needs and in some regard, your hydration needs. So if you're going to go for a long, slow run, then you want to rely more on hydration and maybe some glucose tablets or some dried fruit. But if you're going to be doing intervals, then yeah, you want to have hydration, some quick carbohydrate. But what is that? It's different. So like you're saying, it's different. When I talk about food in the pocket and hydration in the bottle, it comes down to the hydration factor because so many people walk around in a hypohydrated state. And when you start exercising in that hypohydrated state, as a woman, you hold on to more heat and we have less opportunity to lose it. We see that um, Kate Wickham just wrote these beautiful papers on thermoregulation and she was showing that when women hit around that 0.5 to 1% mark of, of hypohydration, there's a significant loss in pacing ability because we have less muscle and more fat by the nature of how we are. So we hold on to more heat and we have less fluid for sweat. So our thermo load is higher per percentage of body water loss. 
So when we're talking about hydration, because really important for women to stay hydrated and have fluid that is going to hydrate. And then, like I said before, as a nature of being women, you're burning fat. So if you do run out of carbohydrate, you're still going to make it to the end because you have reserves that you can use. Not that I recommend it, but just having that in the back of your head. So when we talk about hydration, hydration practices, we see, you know, the two camps that are usually out there, drink to thirst, drink on a schedule. That's based on male data, of course. And we know that there are inherent changes that happen when we start exercising the biochemical changes that affect our thirst. And we also see that there are menstrual cycle changes in our thirst and thirst sensation. And there's also blood sodium changes across the menstrual cycle, as well as hormonal contraception use. And then when we get into peri and postmenopause, that thirst sensation is blunted even more. And we have even greater issues offloading heat. So we have issues with thermoregulation. So when we're talking about hydration for women, we can't have blanket statements of drink to thirst or drink on a schedule. We actually have to like kind of biohack ourselves where I tell people, look, I would love to be able to tell you that you need 20 ounces per hour and you're going to be golden. But I don't know, one, how hydrated or hypohydrated you are at the start, uh, what your, you know, how well you recovered from yesterday, what your environmental condition is, where you are in your menstrual cycle. Even if you tell me, I'm not 100% sure because of um, hormonal fluxes. So let's not dig ourselves into the weeds. Let's take a bottle. But before we go, we're going to pee on a urine dipstick and we're going to see what your specific gravity is. Then I want you to go out and do your normal hydration and your normal run and come back and do it again. And let's see what that um, specific gravity change is. And then the next time we go out for that same run, based on what that data is, I'm going to give you some prescriptive guidelines. So maybe it is drink to a schedule but that's just because I want you to sip, sip, sip along the way. It's not I want you to guzzle. And then we're being very prescriptive in the fluid that you're using so that we make sure you're using a functional hydration, not a carbohydrate-loaded drink. So it, it becomes a little bit more scientific, and it seems like it's a lot of work at the start. But then people begin to understand their bodies and know how much they need. And as a woman, when you are like, oh my gosh, it's a change of seasons. Now all of a sudden it's 80 degrees and I've been used to 55 and I'm starting to overheat. And then they can really dial in their hydration needs to stay on top of the thermoregulation. Do you find that sweat rate testing, even doing something like an at-home, you know, way before and after, it gives you a ballpark? Like obviously multiple times, like do it a lot, do it multiple times, multiple runs, multiple conditions, so it's always be more helpful. But, you know, sometimes people are, you know, this is a this is a lie. I think we've probably shifted a lot of people's worlds in understanding what their hydration strategy could or should look like. Um, is that helpful data to have? Um, it is. We use the WUT scale a lot where we're looking at weight, urine color, and thirst. So having your weight before and after important, looking at urine color before and after important, and gauging your thirst, how thirsty you are before you go out and definitely in the hours afterwards. And so that can give you a gauge of, did I hydrate well or not? 
So if you don't want to invest in and don't understand the urine dipsticks and that kind of stuff, go with the weight urine thirst scale. It's been validated and it's really good to implement at home. You can control it. But yes, it is really important to keep track of how much body water I've lost. But the caveat about body weight is it doesn't take into account what fuel has been oxidized and how much of that water has come from the muscle versus what's in the plasma space. So it's not as accurate as we would necessarily want it to be, but it's accurate enough to be able to help people dial in their own needs. I did read at some point, and my good Lord, I cannot remember where, that if you do the way before and after, and then you take, you subtract about 10%, that 10% could account for subs like glycogen burned and fatty acids being burned, basically the rest of the stuff that isn't the water lost from your sweat. Yep, yep. That whole pints a pound a world around after exercise doesn't quite hold water anymore. That 10% part is definitely true. Very cool. You're laughing. You know that exercise fizz saying, right? <laughs> I feel very validated. Thank you, Dr. Sims. Nice. <laughs> um, let's talk about electrolytes. This Because we, you talked about a hydrating fluid. When we talk about electrolytes, I want people to get out of the mindset that we need to replace them while we are exercising. So we have plenty of sodium stores in our body. We can lose up to 50% and still be okay. Caveat is if you have a history of hyponatremia or you are on medication that predisposes you to hyponatremia, it's a different population. But in general, we're looking at sodium in a fluid to help us with fluid absorption. So looking around 350 to 360 milligrams per 20 ounces. So that really optimizes fluid absorption plus a little bit of carbohydrate about a one and a half to three percent solution if you're a salty sweater then there's a few things around that one you're probably fitter than you think you are because we see changes in sweat sodium with fitness also do you usually salt your food throughout the day or you know you crave salt then you're going to sweat out more salt um what phase of the menstrual cycle are you in? Because if you're in the high hormone phase, you tend to lose more salt through fluids because your body's kicking out more sodium. So there are lots of nuances. So when people talk about sweat sodium tests, I'm like, take it with a grain of salt, pun intended. What we want to do is we want to make sure that what we're eating and drinking has sodium in it to help with fluid absorption. And then when you're thinking about, but what about magnesium? What about potassium? What about salt tablets? No, that's all in the mindset of replacing electrolytes. And we're not in that business. We're in fluid absorption. And then when you are eating real food afterwards, that's when you're replacing your lost electrolytes. If you're doing Kona Ironman, that's a different story. Then we have to look at, at other things. But even up to a four-hour ultra run, then we still just look at sodium as fluid absorption, not salt tablets for sodium replacement. And I do know we have triathletes listen to the show and obviously ultra runners as well. I think a lot of the things we're talking about here are, I'd say, our, our normal distance endurance events, right? Marathons, half marathons, maybe you're particularly- 50K, yeah, up the, to 50K. Yeah. Up to 50K, right. But as soon as you get into that, eight, nine, 10, 12 hour, like that's right. That's that's a separate conversation. And hopefully if you are going for that long, you will take the time to biohack in a good way, like what you actually need and not just say, yeah, I read it in a book somewhere. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is all supposed to be something that works in conjunction with each other. You can't just say, well, I, I feel during my run so that absolves me of the fact that I'm not eating for the rest of the day. Like this all works together. It does, absolutely 100% works together. 
It's like the pyramid, right? You can't have the pointy top without all the other stuff underneath so that it all works together. Yes. So I know we are just about out of time here, but I did want to ask you one question because I'm very excited to know, is there any research that you know of that is currently being conducted or that you are, are, are going to be conducting on topics that you're like, oh, I cannot wait to see what they find? Um, so there's lots of research going on in the female athlete space, which is fantastic. There's quite a few groups doing more on red S, red S prevention, which is interesting, but not as interesting as some of the other things that are going on. Um, we currently are working on one that I'm really excited about, and it makes people feel a little bit squeamish when I talk about it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We are collecting full menstrual fluid, so not just the blood, but we're looking at full menstrual fluid, and we're looking at comparing that to serum blood markers for early indication of PCOS, endometriosis, inflammation, um, and quantifying what heavy menstrual bleeding is. Part of it is advocacy because we think about all the people who are out rurally and can't afford a doctor, but they have these issues that are going on, or people who just live really far away and they can't get to a doctor if something comes up, building at-home kits so they can test their menstrual fluid and see. So that's something that I'm really excited about. Oh my gosh. And I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> people are a little bit squeamish, so part of it is also focus groups to see how it will be you know, received if you're like, you can do this at home kit to see if you have PCOS or endometriosis, early cancer diagnosis, all these kinds of things. We'll see how far down we get, but you have to use your menstrual blood. So for me, I'm like, yeah, no problem. But if I talk to my sister, she's like, Ew. I was like, oh yeah, I know. So that's something I'm excited about. And then we're doing a lot of mixed method stuff. So we're really trying to get after and understand what young female athletes versus older female athletes feel about menstrual cycle or hormonal contraception and how that impacts themselves with regards to how they want to train, how they want to talk to their coaches, because there is a disconnect in the education and the conversation. So using the qualitative and the quantitative to bring things together to encourage the conversation and the education appropriate for particular populations. So... Oh my gosh. I am excited about those. <laughs> Cannot wait. Cannot wait to see those findings. Dr. Stacy Sims, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been a bit of a, a like, am I in a dream? Reading your book a couple years ago, talking to you today, sharing your wealth of knowledge and wisdom with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition. 